Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision but is what, what is called by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you. Good to be here with you. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mosher. It's my privilege to be able to open the Word uh, and to dive into this together. And before we begin this morning, could you just join me in a brief word of prayer? Lord Jesus, we come into this morning with minds and hearts that are busy, with distractions and cares of this week weighing heavy, with minds that are racing with things to do. And so, God, I pray that as we come to your word this morning, that you would do the work of renewing our minds. Would you calm our hearts and our souls? Would you open the eyes of our heart to see the beauty and the wonder of your gospel? God, would the, would the majesty of your grace overwhelm our hearts? Would we see through text? like the one we're studying this morning, what it means to be a people that are called apart, called to be separate as a church, that we're called and united in one body, in the flesh, in Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you would do the work among us that only you can do. God, I pray that you would break down the idols of our minds and our hearts, break down our objections, the things of our flesh that would push against what it is that you'd have us to learn today. And God, I pray your blessing on our time together this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, if you're not already there, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you've been with us uh, over the last several weeks as we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, um, you, what you've heard me say time and time again is that this book is really a letter uh, written to the church about the church. 
It's a letter that's given to the church to be instruction about what it actually means to be a church. And so chapter 1, Paul begins by laying out uh, this, this magnificent prayer of his soul. The first uh, verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, which are given to the idea, this rapturous prayer of Paul, where he's saying, I want you to see and understand and know who your Savior is. I want you to know the love of the Father. I want you to see His power as it's at work in the world. The work that it does to redeem what is lost and broken. The work that it does to call to the person of Jesus Christ, those who are far off, which is what we're going to be talking about specifically in this morning. And really, Paul's prayer is, I want you to see the power of the work of Jesus Christ as it plays itself out in the world. And so last week in particular, we began diving into that idea in the first 10 verses of Ephesians, where really we're given what is the explicit gospel. And it's the idea that the grace uh, that was given to you is the thing that was ultimately necessary for your salvation, that you had no works to offer, that there was nothing good in and of yourself, that there was nothing you could do to purchase for yourself what God had already provided through Jesus Christ. And what was so amazing about that is that Paul went on to say that not only was grace given to you uh, so that you could not boast in your own flesh, but that even the faith to believe in Christ came from Christ. In other words, Paul is saying there is nothing in you that gets to take credit for the work of God in your life, that we are utterly and completely dependent on God and his love and his pursuing work for us. And today, as we dive into the the last uh, 12 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to talk about how that very same gospel begins to reconcile alienated people to one another in the very same way that we were reconciled to God the Father. There is a work of reconciliation that the gospel brings in the lives of believers in Jesus Christ. And what Paul wants us to walk away seeing this morning is that what he prayed about in that first chapter, that we would see the power of the gospel as it does that work in hearts and lives, can be seen first and foremost in the lives of the church of Jesus Christ. That people who otherwise had no reason to get along and had all sorts of reason for opposition are now made into one body. And so as we come to this text, we hear language that is very strange to our ears. I mean, we hear language where Paul says things like circumcision and uncircumcision, and all of a sudden it becomes very clear that there's a cultural gap happening here, because those aren't ordinarily things that we talk about. But as we hear that language, what he's trying to draw out was this distinction that was so ever-present for the original audience. It was something that would have dominated the hearts and the minds of those first believers as they grappled with their own with their own hostilities and their own anger, their own racial resentment and their own ethnic pride as they were trying to wrestle through those elements of what does it mean to be a Christian and to be sitting in the same row as someone who thinks opposite me on so many other issues. These were things that would have been constant reminders of the differences that rose up between Christians in this day, particularly in this Greco-Roman culture. These were obvious and deep-seated hatreds. And Paul says these are the things that begin to be transformed by the gospel in our lives. So look first at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God 
in the world. Now, Paul here is writing as an ethnic Jew. He's someone who described himself in other passages as a Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. I mean, everything you can imagine that would set a Jew apart in this culture marks Paul as a person. And he's writing here primarily to a Gentile audience, to this church of Gentile believers in Ephesus. And Paul references in this text a word that that to our eyes may not mean much, again, essentially because of the cultural gap, but to this audience would have leapt off the page to them. Because he says, I'm writing to you the uncircumcision. Now that phrase wasn't merely a description of those who weren't of Jewish heritage, but it was also used as a pejorative term. It was what Jews would have called Gentiles, those filthy uncircumcised. I mean, this is the same sort of attitude that led to the Jews at this time referring to Gentiles as dogs. Their view of the Gentile people was that they were something less than whatever they were, maybe even something less than human. And Paul goes on to define why that attitude prevailed in this text. He gives us five different descriptions of Gentiles. We'll go through them briefly. Here's what he says. He says, first, you were separated from Christ. Now understand that to a Jew, they wouldn't have been concerned at all about the fact that you were separated from Jesus because so many of them didn't believe that he was the Messiah. But when he's, when he's referencing Christ here, he's not just referencing the name of Jesus, he's referencing his title. I mean, you understand that Christ was not the last name of Jesus, right? I mean, it wasn't Mary and Joseph Christ and here's their son, Jesus. This was a title that was given to him and it literally meant Messiah, It was an indicator of who he was as a person, of his title, of his privilege, of the position of honor that he'd been given. It was an example of the fact that he was, in fact, the one who had come to free and bring salvation to the people. And so when he says that you were separated from Christ, what Paul is actually saying here is that in the eyes of the Jews, the reason they had such disdain for the Gentiles is because they were not looking for the Messiah. The Gentiles were not only not looking for a savior, they weren't even looking at God's promises. They didn't care about the fact that God had said that one day he would send the Messiah who will come and fix all of this. They weren't even aware of their own need. And he goes on to say, you've been alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. See, the Gentiles were not part of ethnic or national Israel. They weren't part of the people of God that had been set apart. And think again about Paul who's writing this, this this, this man who describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's born of the tribe of Benjamin. He has all of these credentials setting him apart as a Jew. All of these things that clarified who he was ethnically and nationally. And so to try to put this in some sort of context, if you've ever traveled abroad, there's something strange about being in a place where you are not part of the culture. It becomes very apparent and very evident to you very quickly that you may not belong in the place in which you're visiting. And I remember having a friend uh, who was a missionary. He was a missionary in China and and in India. And over the course of about 15 years, he ended up being kicked out of both countries because of uh, governmental changes and, and governments cracking down on Christianity in particular. And I remember him sharing the story about the fact that there's something so strange of being in a country, even legally, being there on a visa, uh, but being in a country legally and knowing that you do not have the same protections as citizens. And he said there was this constant turmoil kind of boiling underneath everything for him and his family as as they realized that they did not have the same protections. They were not considered the same 
as everyone that was around them. And those things were put into stark contrast when on two different occasions in two different countries, the government came to his door and said, you have 24 hours to leave this country or you'll be arrested. I mean, imagine how terrifying that feeling must be. And what Paul is saying is, you are not part of the nation of Israel. You did not belong to this people. This was not your ethnic and your national identity. You did not have the protections of citizenship as a Jew. And then he uses these three phrases. He says, says, you are strangers to the covenants of promise, that all the promises that have been made in the Old Testament that assured God's love and his passion and his pursuit and his protection, all of these things that God had promised his people did not apply to you as Gentiles, that you had no hope That there was nothing in this life upon which you could depend. And finally, that you were without God in the world. And Paul is saying the Gentiles were so alienated in their mindset, they were so set apart as a people that they didn't even realize their need for a Savior. And here's what's so incredible about this and the thing that we need to put in context. Do you understand that if you're in this room and you are not an ethnic Jew, that this description applies to you? That we've been alienated from the promises of God. In the words of the theologian William Hendrickson, he said that we are Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. And that prior to Christ, we weren't even aware that we needed a Savior. Imagine the lostness. And for some of you, you don't have to imagine because you know it well. Paul is speaking to people like us, and he's saying, you were far off, you were an outsider, your destination apart from Christ was estrangement and alienation. And what's fascinating about this opening salvo of Paul is that he starts by saying, I want you to remember. This is the only instruction, the only command that we're given in the first three chapters is remember. Remember how separated and alienated you were from God. Remember how you were not a part of the covenant people of of Israel. Remember how you were not a part of the family of God. Do not forget that you were alienated from God and from everybody else. And he continues in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now that verse is incredible for a lot of reasons, but again, in order to understand it, we need to dive into the rather graphic language that Paul uses that would be easy to read over. Because Paul uses this phrase, the dividing wall of hostility, and we think that he just means it in some sort of descriptive term, but he's actually referencing something very specific. See, in the first century, in the Herodian temple where the Jews would have gathered to meet, there were three distinct courts separated by walls. And so as you would have walked into that initial court, it was called the court of the Gentiles, it was walled off, and it was specifically for people who were Gentiles, who were followers of the one true God. And so Gentiles could come into that court and they could worship God, they could make atonement for their sin, they could pray, they could do all of the things that were part of what it, mean, of what it meant to be a follower of God. And then there was a second gate that was specifically designated for Jewish women. 
And it's the idea that, 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 that Gentiles were not allowed in this second court, but that Jewish women were. They were allowed to enter. And even the women, there were all kinds of limitations and restrictions. You had to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean in order to enter that second court. And finally, there was a third court, the inner court, not the innermost court, all right? If you know your tabernacle, there's all kinds of descriptions, but this inner court where for, where for the Jews is the presence of God was dwelling, and that was specifically for Jewish men who were cleansed and had obeyed the law to the point where they could go in without fear of death. So just imagine the visceral description that comes across when Paul says something like the dividing wall of hostility has been removed. Because what archaeologists discovered as they found that original place where the temple gathered was that there was a sign posted on that outermost wall where the Gentiles would have gathered, and it said, whoever is captured past this point will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. And imagine coming to church and walking through that gate realizing that you could stand here on the outskirts as a Gentile and worship the one true God, but that you were not welcome to come further. And then imagine in a modern context what it must have been like for a woman to come to church and to be able to enter that second court but be held away from the presence of God. Do you begin to understand where this hostility comes from? See, the Jews were, were the children of God's promise. They were chosen people. They were a set-apart nation, and they were given the law of God, which is inherently good. It was inherently a blessing to them. It was a gift to them. It was a sign of God's love and favor having been placed upon them. It was a demonstration of the fact that they belonged to God, and it was meant to be something that would, that would incite attraction on the part of people that didn't know God where they would see the lives and they would see the behavior of God's people and they would say, those people have something that I don't have. But the irony was that this law that was given originally as a gift very quickly ended up being the reason that there was hostility. Because the Jews began to take this instruction and these laws that had been given to them and they began to turn it as a reason to hate other people who didn't believe like they did. So the Jews began to hate the Gentiles because they didn't have the law, and the Gentiles began to hate the Jews because of the derision they experienced at the hand of them. So these two races, and by which uh, we are included, by the way, Jews and non-Jews. So if you're here today and you're not an ethnic religious Jew, you are inherently a non-Jew. This is all of us, right? There's, there's this hatred and this derision between these people as they despised one another. And the Jews had started to view the Gentiles in this way, in this, um, in this mode of derision because they began to assume that the favor they had experienced was something that they earned from God. That God's love was on them because they obeyed the law. So they began to look down on and exclude other people. And it's easy to condemn all of this. But understand that the same sort of attitude exists in us today. And what Paul wants you to see is that the Gentiles, which are all of us, deserved to be left on the outside. And by nature, we are people who desperately want to be in. Not even in just a spiritual sense, but you think about the things that motivate and drive people, the places we live, the schools that our kids attend, kind of car we drive and the clothes that we wear and the jobs that we hold 
for so many people are their whole purpose for existence. A desperate cry to be in, to be accepted. But what Paul says in this amazing verse is that we who were far off have been brought near. That because of the work of Jesus Christ, the dividing wall that separated, that brought division and hatred between people, the wall that divided not only us from God, but also from one another has been broken down and we've been invited in. So how does that happen? Look at verse 15. Christ did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the law had been given to show these people how they were supposed to rest in the covenant perfect promises of God. But because we are inherently sinful, all the law ultimately ended up showing us was was that we could not obey. I mean, this is what Paul writes about in Romans where he says, "When when you begin to observe the law of God, when you begin to follow the law of God, when you begin to obey the law of God, what you quickly realize is that you have no ability to actually obey it. Try as you might to do the right thing outside of the work of Jesus Christ, you are trying and failing. It's what we talked about last week, which is that you are either viewed as a rebel or a failure. Outside of Christ, those are your only two options. And so we needed to be freed from the law that we could not obey. The law had become a condemnation on us. And so Jesus abolishes the law to remove the hostility, and he does this in two ways. And by the way, these these two ways that I'm going to explain, these are shorthand for us. This is language that we use often, but I want to take just a little bit of time to explain what we mean. Because the first way that Christ broke down that dividing wall, the first way that he brought this redemption and, and, and abolished the law was through his sinless life. We find this in Hebrews 4.15, which says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus, upon his death, was the same age that I am right now. And I think about the life I've lived over the last 33 years, the temptations that have come across my path, the resentment and the anger and all the problems that I've had in my own heart. And I think about the fact that Jesus, in the very same length of time, experienced all of those temptations, and yet he did it sinlessly. That Jesus Christ did perfectly, at every point, what I couldn't on my best day accomplish. And because of his sinless life, he was the only one worthy of God's love and affection. And that's what led to the second point, not only his sinless life, but also his sacrificial death. That we were reconciled to the Father through the cross. See, that the cross is the means by which Jesus breaks down the dividing wall. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For our sake, He, that's God the Father, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That the only person in the history of the world who did not deserve death experienced the most most brutal death possible so that his perfect life could be applied to yours. 
We talked about this at length, so we won't spend a lot of time on it, but this is what Luther called the great exchange, where all of Jesus Christ's perfect actions were applied to your heart and your life, and all of your sin was put onto Jesus Christ, so that in that moment on the cross, when Jesus Christ said, it is finished, from that moment forward, for those who know Jesus Christ, when God the Father looks at you, he no longer sees the failure, he no longer sees the screw-up, he no longer sees the rebel, but what he sees is the face of his Son. He's redeemed what was broken. He's adopted what was foreign. He's brought us into Himself. And when Jesus Christ took our sin on Himself, that included our sins of racism. It included our sins of prejudice. It included our sins of looking down on other people, on those who don't live like us or act like us or think like us, on the neighbor you can't stand, on the coworker that you don't like that all of that sin was put onto him. Why did he do all that? Multiple reasons, but in this text, here's what he says, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And that, that phrase, one new man, is so rich. Because if you look at the word that's translated new in your Bible, it's the Greek word kainos, which literally means unprecedented, unheard of. In other words, this isn't some refabrication of something old. This isn't making something old in a new fashion or improving it in some way. This is, this is something that is totally unseen before, unprecedented, unheard of. And then he says, not only is it new, but he says in one new man. And there's actually a better way to translate that word man, because this is the Greek word anthropon, and literally what it means is mankind or humanity. He's saying, in the work of Jesus Christ, God doesn't just bring Jews and Gentiles together. He brings them to Jesus. And the reason that that is infinitely greater is because we live in a world that recognizes the benefits of people who don't look like or act like or think like each other uh, trying to get along. But the problem is the world only has one solution to that. And it's to try to shame people into right behavior. But the problem is you've left the heart totally unaffected. And what we're being told in this passage is that this wasn't Jesus telling you or shaming you into behaving a particular way towards a particular person, but rather he's given you a new heart and he's brought you into a new people, a brand new people. So let me try to illustrate this in the best way that I can. Cultures are incredibly powerful things. They influence our thinking and they influence our lifestyle, our worldview, our perspective, they influence, influence us in ways that we can't even comprehend. And so you can think about the, the, the ways that people naturally get along even in our context, right? I mean, so what's the first thing, well, I want to ask this uh, for a public response, but one of the first things that people do when they meet somebody new is they'll begin to talk about sports, right? And you very quickly find out if you have something in common with that person, right? Because they're like, oh, I'm not into sports or I'm into this weird sport that you've never heard of. All right, well, I don't really have anything else to talk to you about. But in Wisconsin, that's not so much of a problem because we have this culture in which we really care about our sports. So you can talk to somebody who you don't know at all, who you've never met before, and you can begin to talk about the suffering you experienced at the hands of the Bucks last night. Right? You can talk about how the Brewers are doing. You can talk about how you think the Packers are going to play this year. And, and even if somebody doesn't have all the knowledge that they would need to carry out the conversation about the particularities of that sport, the one thing that we all have in common is that we hate Chicago sports, right? <laughs> if all else fails, you just rip on the Cubs and then your best friends. I mean, that's just how 
this whole thing works. And this is the culture in which we live, right? We've got, we've got these little things by which we kind of find connections in ourselves. But what does that ultimately mean? What it might mean is that you just have one or two interests in common with that person. That might be as far or as deep as that relationship goes. But to put this in stark contrast, let me give you another story. So several years ago, uh, Jessica and I were in Rome, and I remember walking into a particular shop uh, in Rome and, and hearing an American accent and kind of looking around and going, oh, who else is, who else is here? And, and it turns out it was one of the shopkeepers that was there. And so we started talking about, uh, talking about the U.S. and why were they here and why was I here? And we're having this whole conversation. And then naturally we're saying, oh, where are you from? One of the first questions that comes up. And the answer came back, Chicago. Where are you from? Well, Milwaukee. And they said, well, that's near Chicago. And I said, well, that's just like something that somebody from Illinois would say. <laughs> that's uh, not unexpected. But immediately there was a bonding despite those differences. Now, why was that? It's because we shared a much broader and greater culture. See, what Paul is saying is that when you share the same ethnicity or the same language or the same race as someone else, it is such a profound experience where there are these connections that you didn't even realize were there in countless areas. And what Paul is saying in no uncertain terms here is that when you become a Christian, despite all of the connections that you, that you have with people who look like you and act like you and think like you, your Christianity becomes the most profound thing about you. That you have a deeper bond on that level than you could ever have in any, any other element of culture. That Jesus takes people who had hatred toward one another and he unites them into a new humanity. Peter, when he talks about the same idea in the book of 1 Peter, goes so far as to call it a new ethnicity. Some of you have experienced this in very visceral ways, maybe overseas or here, but, but maybe it's not even just that. I mean, maybe for some of you, your family is so broken and your relationships with them are so broken that you find yourself no longer really having anything in common with them. And all of a sudden, these friendships that you have with other Christians become far more meaningful. Where you have true family in one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And do you realize that on some level, what that is, is an extension or a reflection of Jesus Christ's relationship with us. That we're told that Jesus Christ came to a people who hated him. Hated him to the extent that they were willing to murder him. And that for many of those same people who murdered him, or by extension we who murdered him with our sin, we are told in the New Testament that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. See, Paul knew what he was talking about. Because the same man who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee, in other words, he had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament law along with the rabbinical law. The same man who referred to himself as blameless under the law refused to refer to the Gentiles by these pejorative terms, including dog. And he goes on to say in the book of Ephesus and Colossians and Philippians, brothers. This familial intent. 
that all of these things that have kept us divided and separated have been pushed to the background and you have a new cause for unity, that you are no longer primarily marked by your race or your ethnicity or your geography or your family of origin. What Paul is suggesting here is profound because what it means for us is that you are a Christian first and you're a Wisconsinite second. You're a Christian first and you're an American second. You're a Christian first, and you're your race second. And it's not that those, it's not that those histories or those experiences are, are worthless, but it's that, it's that they are reordered in your life. That something else has come in that, that changes everything. That you're a new family, a new nation, that your home is heaven. And understand the implications of this as we think beyond the local context into the context of our culture. The unity of the church stands as evidence of the work that Christ has done and is doing in the world. Verse 17 continues by saying, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And when he says peace, he's not talking about it in this very limited sense where he's saying we're no longer at war, although that certainly is included in it. But he's talking about that Old Testament idea of shalom. That the world was created in perfect unity and in perfect harmony and in perfect dependence in and of itself. And that when sin entered the world, the very fabric of creation was ripped apart. That there was warring and hatred and despair and agony and pain and suffering. And that what Christ came to bring was true peace, true shalom. The restoration, the re-knitting of what had been torn apart. He's talking here about the fullness of life that God intended for us. So to put this in stark contrast for us, I mean, some of you grew up in Christian homes. That's your experience, that's your background. So you grew up attending church and you grew up going to Sunday school and going to junior church and you were the president of your youth group and you were the captain of the Bible quiz team and they had to add sleeves to your Awana vest because you had so many patches and pins on it. And by the way, if you understand that reference, you're one of the people I'm talking about. Like Awana pins, what do you, don't worry about it, it doesn't matter. All right, but some of you, that's your experience. You, you grew up so closely within the context of the church that you may have even missed your need for Christ. That was me. I mean, I could have given you the gospel back to you, but I didn't really know it for years later. And for others of you, you grew up on the flop opposite of that experience. Irreligious, atheistic, agnostic, addicted, broken families, broken relationships. Your life just appeared to have been one bad decision after another you were far off. And so while Paul says to those who were near, which were the Jews, or those who were far off, or the Gentiles, I would extend that same thing to you, to those of you who grew up in the church, and to those of you who just darkened the door for the first time last week. What Paul is saying is that Jesus, of his own volition, came to pursue and to restore and to bring salvation to those who were far off. Jerry Bridges said it this way. He said, our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. So what does this redeemed people look like? Verse 19. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We had no privileges, we had no rights, we had no standing, we had no home, but God brought us into his household. And now what he's saying is this, you are fellow citizens, and notice the next word he says, saints. It's not a word that we use often in our context, we usually think of it as somebody that's old and dead. But the context is here is someone who has been redeemed and given long life. So addicts and cheaters and liars and thieves and promiscuous people and atheists and self-righteous and arrogant and proud and religious have been made into a new people in God. Look at verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's the, the authority of the word of God. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the Bible often talks about the idea that the Spirit dwells within us if you're a believer, and and that's certainly in an individual level, but here's what he's saying. He's saying not only does it happen individually, but also happens corporately. That God is in the process of knitting together a diverse people to himself. And we're going to dive headlong into that next week as we dive into chapter 3. But the the death of Jesus makes friends out of enemies. It makes countrymen out of foreigners. It makes family out of strangers. That spiritually, these people who are far apart have been brought together. And that he rebuilds us into a temple. And not a temple that's sanctioned off with different places for different people, but that you have become, we have become, not only as disciples' church, but as part of the church universal, with all saints of all the ages in all places, the temple of God. See, the temple was the place where people went to experience and encounter God, but it was also a place where the division between Jew and Gentile was on full display. And what he's saying here is that now we, the church, in the universal sense, the saints of all times and in all places, have been made into the dwelling place of God and that we have a microcosm of that within this local church. So that when people interact with us, they are encountering God through the gospel that we proclaim and the lives that we live. And all of that is done so that the words of Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer would ring true when people would describe Christians and even when they would describe those who are part of Disciples Church. Because in that prayer, what Jesus said is, the glory that you, Father, have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them And you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. And Jesus in this passage is comparing the unity of the people of God to the unity that he has with the Father. Now, how is that even possible? Because at the cross, Jesus, who is perfectly united with the Father, became alienated from him. That Jesus, who had experienced perfect oneness with the Father, was made as an outcast. 
One pastor said it this way, the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus Christ prays to God and doesn't call him Father is on the cross. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he loses in that moment, we gained. That he was estranged from the perfect unity that he had always known. And that he did that so that you could call God Father. And that you could call any Christian anywhere in the world at any time brother or sister. He's brought us into a family with whom we otherwise would have had hostilities. So my invitation to you is to imagine what it would be like if we as a church locally in this place could begin to model out that kind of love. In this room, there's all kinds of opinions and there's all kinds of differences and there's all kinds of backgrounds and experiences. But what would it look like to be a people who so recognize that first and foremost, we are marked by our faith and unity in Jesus Christ that everything else faded in comparison? Not that those things are unimportant, not that they don't matter, but that in comparison to the unity that we have with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, they become second. It's the invitation we're given in this passage. It's the call that we've been given in this passage. And my prayer is that we as a people would be ones who model that kind of love and unity. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for your call. God, I realize that this is one of those texts where people come in with their own presumptions about what it means. Maybe they come in with their guard up. Maybe they come in with their defenses on high. Maybe they liked what they heard and maybe they didn't. But God, my prayer is that to the extent that this word is true and real, and we know that it is, that you would use it to reveal those things in our heart that we haven't let go of. God, reveal our own insecurities. Reveal our own dependencies. Reveal those areas of hatred. And God, even bring to mind those in our own lives with whom we have quarrel with whom we disagree, and with whom we have inviting. God, I pray that you would bring restoration so that we could properly model and reflect the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God, because ultimately it is not just our names that are at stake, it is yours. So help us to be faithful to that calling, to be honest in our introspection, and to be faithful to confess and repent where confession and repentance is needed. So we thank you for the opportunity we have to be brothers and sisters. Help us embrace that identity and to find unity through Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.